Hello and welcome back to Reason for Hope. I hope you're having a great day today. So let's take a minute to invite the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts today. Let's make God an integral part of our day. You might say, well, how do we do that? Well, all we have to do is just remember Him. Think of Him throughout our day. Call upon Him and talk to Him. This is how we pray. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're new to us, welcome. So please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And, and, you know, give it a good rating. This really helps us get the word out. And also hit that share button. Let people know about it. Join us on social media where you can be engaged through our music, our videos, and our daily reflections as well. All the music on this podcast is original and it's created by Array of Hope. So please subscribe to us on Spotify and all the other music platforms. So let me ask you a question today. Who is one of the most important saints in our church? We really don't know that much about him, but his role in our story of salvation is undeniable. Come on, do you give up? It's St. Joseph, of course. Do we ask for his intercessory prayers often? Well, we really should. Did you know that he is the patron saint of homes, jobs, and the universal church? His life was recorded in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew and Luke. Joseph was a descendant of the house of King David. An angel appeared to Joseph several times in his life. First, to trust that Mary was to bear the Son of God in her womb. To be not afraid and to take Mary, his wife, into his home, because the child in her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And also, the angel told him to name the child Jesus. After Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the angel again came to Joseph, this time to warn him about King Herod of Judea and the violence he would bring down upon the child. Joseph fled to Egypt with Mary and Jesus, and the angel appeared again, telling Joseph that Herod had died and instructing him to return to the Holy Land. So the little that we know about him is that he was obedient, he was trusting, he was courageous, and most importantly, he was a protector. What an example of what a husband and a father should be like. And you know what? He is still our protector today. Our guest today is Bill Donahue, and what a wonderful man and father he is, and he has an abundance of knowledge about our faith. And we're gonna talk about a lot of things today, as well as the power of this incredible saint, Saint Joseph, the protector of the church. So welcome to Reason for Hope, and here we go. So here we are again with Dr. David Heideck, our Director of Theology here at Array of Hope. Welcome, David. It's always great to have you around. And uh, we're going to discuss St. Joseph as a protector of the church today, and we're going to learn about authentic masculinity from him. I could say, Dave, that there is a real confusion in our culture about masculinity. The phrases like toxic masculinity get very cavalierly thrown around. I, I don't get that. And you might even think that there's no such things as masculine traits anymore. 
tomorrow. So we're going to dive into that today and see what the scriptures and St. Joseph tell us about this. This is really important because our listeners may not know, but Pope Francis declared the year of St. Joseph, which runs through the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in 2021. So Dave, first off, what are the key points about St. Joseph you would like to share with our listeners? Well, I think that there's some points about St. Joseph that are often misunderstood, and I wanted to bring some clarity there first. First, virginity. Joseph was not Mary's most chaste spouse by default, you know, because he happened to be married to Mary, who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and was perpetually a virgin. Many saints have attested that Joseph and Mary had both made vows of virginity, and they likely discussed this before their betrothal, in fact. This idea that's very current today that Joseph was older or a widower who had other children from a previous marriage, perhaps, has never been the teaching of the church and actually comes from apocryphal sources. So one quote, for example, about this that I think is a a really good one is one from St. Francis de Sales, who says, both Mary and Joseph made a vow to remain virgins all the days of their lives, and God wished them to be united in the bonds of marriage not because they repented of the vow already made, but to be confirmed in it and to encourage each other to continue in this holy relation. So St. Francis de Sales, doctor of the church, makes clear that Joseph and Mary both had made this vow of perpetual virginity. Related to this is this idea of the old Joseph versus the young Joseph. We can see a lot of old Josephs in art. The, the image of an old Joseph, by the way, doesn't in fact make much sense. I mean, think about it. His very job would have necessitated a strength that was the strength of a young man. Uh, a carpenter in Greek, tekton, was really a builder, a woodworker, um, that he would know how to make roofs, how to make beams for roofs. His work would even demand masonry work to build foundations of houses. He wasn't just somebody who made tables and chairs. So, our very concept of what a carpenter means, I think, is skewed. It really refers to a much broader amount of work that would have necessitated carrying beams, you know, moving around heavy objects, um, real hard manual labor that you can't imagine the old man of paintings being able to do, right? So I think that's uh, that's one thought. Um, Another is, you know, the very journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census, that was really rough terrain. You just really can't imagine an old man making that that trek, you know? And then in addition to that, the fact that he had a very vulnerable wife, and those roads were really treacherous, known to be plagued by bandits and thieves. How would an old man have ever been able to protect a vulnerable wife from thieves and bandits. So, again, this notion of him being old, it doesn't really sync up with what we know. I think many people think that Joseph was old because it's certainly the case that he was dead by the time of Jesus' public ministry. But um, I think maybe we have to be careful. Maybe another reason for his being depicted as old is almost a lack of 
faith that somebody could live from the time of a young man completely chaste. To me, how can Joseph be the most chaste if being chaste wasn't really a virtue, but rather was merely default because of age? Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. But if Joseph were in his prime years, now that vow of chastity takes on a powerful meaning. And it also shows that, that such purity is possible, right? And I think that that's, that's another key component of a young Joseph. Hmm. Another idea, uh, this idea of Joseph being Jesus's father. While not Jesus's biological father, Joseph was truly a father. St. John Paul II wrote that Joseph's fatherhood was not a substitute fatherhood. In fact, what St. John Paul II says is, rather, it was one that fully shares an authentic human fatherhood and the mission of a father in the family. From every outsider's perspective, Joseph would have been Jesus's dad, right? I mean, think about that Joseph had to do the things that every father would have had to do. So Joseph names Jesus. Naming the child gives Joseph legal fatherhood over Jesus. So then Jesus is brought to be circumcised by Joseph, which is actually the first religious duty of a Jewish father. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when they find Jesus in the temple at the age of 12, what does Mary say? Your father and I have been looking for you. So the Blessed Virgin Mary says of Joseph that he is Jesus's father. Sure. So now there's this other phrase that's a really key one, and that is that Jesus is called the carpenter's son. Hmm. So everybody presumed that Jesus was Joseph's son and, in fact, did what any son would have done during that time, which is learn the trade of the father, being mentored by the father, take over the work of that father, probably took over Joseph's business and the task of providing for Mary after Joseph couldn't do the work anymore or had mm-hmm. passed away. So all these things really indicate that that Joseph is, in fact, the father of Jesus, though not the biological father. So, Dave, the church calls St. Joseph its universal patron and protector. I mean, why? And what are some of the aspects of St. Joseph you think are important for our understanding the role of husbands, fathers, and men in general in the family and society? Well, as for the title universal patron of the church— Uh, This was declared by Pope Pius IX on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in 1870, which is why Pope Francis has made this the 150th anniversary of that declaration, the year of St. Joseph. A great quote expressing the reasons for this universal patronage actually comes from Pope Leo XIII. And so I wanted to read that quote because I think it's a really great one. The reasons why St. Joseph must be considered the special patron of the church and the church in turn draws exceeding hope from his care and patronage, chiefly arise from his having been the husband of Mary and presumed father of Jesus. Joseph was in his day the lawful and natural guardian, head and defender of the Holy Family. It is thus fitting and most worthy of Joseph's dignity that, in the same way that he once kept unceasingly holy watch over the family of Nazareth, So now does he protect and defend with his heavenly patronage 
the church of Christ. So, I mean, think about it. Joseph protected Christ in his physical body, and he protects the church, Christ's mystical body, right? He protected the holy family of Nazareth, and he protects the family of God that's the church. So it makes perfect sense that he would be this patron of the church. As for what we can learn about being authentic men from St. Joseph and how this can purify, I think, both the failures of past treatment of women and false interpretations of masculinity, as well as a false notion today that you mentioned before that all traditional understandings of masculinity are toxic and that there's no real masculine characteristics or roles at all, as if masculinity and femininity are mere social constructs and have no natural or intrinsic uh, value or source. You know, I would like to look at a controversial passage in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians as a way of uh, getting at some of this. This passage from St. Paul is actually a really important passage for understanding what the masculine identity is all about. Be subject to one another in fear of Christ. Let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let wives be to their husbands in all things. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver of water in the word of life that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, as also Christ doth the church, because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the church. It's beautiful. So I think that passage, which is often misunderstood, uh, actually indicates for us what men are supposed to be, but in particular, what husbands and fathers are supposed to be. So I'd say there are four characteristics that come from that. A man is supposed to be a leader, a lover, a provider, and a protector. Leader. You see the concept of headship in this passage. Now, it is not possible that St. Paul is talking about the leadership of the man in the family, in terms of like domination of the man over his wife. This is not possible because Jesus talks about authority in the gospels as service. The one who would be first should be last. The one who will be the greatest must be the servant of all, right? So, so Jesus talks about leadership or authority in terms of self-emptying love, of laying down my life for the ones I am in authority over. And I think that's really important. We can 
see, by the way, that Joseph is the head of the Holy Family. That quote from Pope Leo XIII refers to him as the head of the Holy Family. In the great litany of St. Joseph, it talks about him as the head of the Holy Family. When it came to matters of what was supposed to happen with the family, the angel appears to Joseph. The angel appears to Joseph and says, go here, do that. Take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, Mm -hmm. right? Um, All these sorts of things. The angel of God respects Joseph's headship and leadership. And that's a leadership over who? Mary, who is the Immaculate Conception, and Jesus, who is the Son of God. And yet Joseph's leadership is still intact. And though Mary was superior to Joseph in holiness, in wisdom, in every perfection, and Jesus is wisdom incarnate, they submit to Joseph's authority. I think that's a really, really important thing. But what is Joseph's leadership for? For serving Mary and Jesus, right? So leadership, lover, leader, lover, a self-sacrificing love. This is, I think, a key part of this passage because it says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and delivered himself up for her. Notice, it's not the wife in that passage who's called to this. It's the husband who's called to die for his bride. He's supposed to lay down his life for his bride. The kind of love men are called to is a self-sacrificing love. That's not to say that women don't sacrifice, but men are the ones who typically go out into war, right? They're the ones that when somebody's breaking into the home, step in the front. They're the ones who are supposed to lay down their life, literally die for the good of their spouse, for their children, for their family. And that's deep within every man. So the kind of love a man is supposed to have is that self-giving, self-sacrificing love, the love of Christ on the cross. And that image of Christ on the cross is important for another reason because it it refers to a love that is self-denying. I think this is key. St. Paul makes clear that we need to crucify our flesh and its desires In other words, we need to purify our desires, our thoughts, our intentions, so that our love is completely pure. That's a chaste love. That's the love that St. Joseph had as Mary's most chaste spouse. It's a love that refuses to look upon the other as an object of use, but rather only sees them as the image of God created for her own sake. Okay, so leader, lover. Provider. It says in the passage how the husband is supposed to nourish and, tr- and cherish his wife as he nourishes and cherishes his own flesh, right? So this is a really, really key component because it talks about how the husband is supposed to provide for the flourishing of the wife and the family. He's supposed to be a leader and a lover for what purpose? To provide for the good, to guarantee the full flourishing of the family, to make sure that the family has what it needs to thrive and survive. 
And I know that we live in a world where many, many women work, and I don't want to discredit the value of women's work. But when it comes to the family, it's the man who's called to provide for the family. If the woman must provide for the family, either because the man cannot do so or her work is needed to supplement what he's doing, then that's another matter. And then, of course, there's the possibility that God might very well call a woman to a particular work or ministry. And if God were to do so, of course, he would only do so in a way that would not bring harm to the family itself or compromise her role within the family. But the fact that the man is called to provide, I think, is something we've lost today. That's deep within every man. Think about St. Joseph. He's providing as a, as a carpenter for the livelihood of his family. He's providing through his work for Mary, for Jesus, for what they need to live. And Mary's providing something else for Jesus in that care and that daily nurturing. I think that with regards to protecting, think about when Herod declares this edict that all the, the male children two years and under are going to be slain, what does Joseph do? He takes the family into Egypt. He protects them. He guards them. You know, I think that even the travel to Bethlehem, there was a protecting, there was a guarding. He was entrusted with the care and protection of Mary and Jesus. And he still is today as the protector of the universal church. Mm-hmm. So I think that we can see there that leader, lover, provider, protector are genuine masculine qualities. I just, I just want to say something, though, about toxic masculinity. I, I wouldn't call it toxic masculinity. I would say there's, there are false interpretations of masculinity. And so let's take those four real quick. If those are the four virtues of masculinity, there could be an excess vice and a defect vice. So on leadership, the excess vice could be somebody who's domineering, controlling, manipulating, um, who dominates in the home, subjugates the wife, or even for that matter, who isn't a good listener and doesn't care about the desires and the hopes or dreams or wants of his wife. Another way of domineering is disregard. But, but there's also a defect vice, and that is a man who's not willing to lead, who's not really willing to take action. Joseph was a man of action, by the way. The angel told him he did it. You know, like it was just that that was the way it goes. So men are supposed to be of action. You know, there's nothing masculine about somebody who's lazy sitting on his couch all day playing video games, who won't get a job or work to get a good job. There's nothing masculine about that. That's a failure. That's a defect vice. So you got lover. There, you could have somebody who objectifies women, who's, who's sexually promiscuous. That would be an excess and misinterpretation of what lover means. And of course, it's not loving at all to treat somebody like an object of use, to see them merely as a means to sexual pleasure, uh, and to disregard their personhood. This has to be always and roundly condemned, and there's nothing masculine about it. But you can also have somebody who's uh, very emotionally cold and distant and not tender and, and sensitive. You know, like I think that, that that's a defect vice on loving. You know, it's a, it's a very big misconception about men that they shouldn't be ever emotional. And no, they should be. They should be very in touch with their emotions. 
as much as they should be in control of them. Okay, providing you can have a, a guy who's a workaholic and who never leaves the office because he's so fixated on material providing, on success, on the status of the family, right? There, there's this, this tunnel vision with regards to that that he, he's not present in the home. But then you can get somebody who just doesn't see providing as his role, who perhaps doesn't try to get the kind of job that can provide for his family. Of course, I'm not talking about circumstances where someone is not able to get that kind of job. Or maybe who just wants to do the kind of work he wants to do and is unwilling to do work that's displeasing, but is the work that he needs to do in order to provide for his family. These are failures in masculinity. And then lastly, uh, protecting. You can have a really hyper-violent, aggressive guy. That's not authentic masculinity. There's a time to be tough. There's a time to be brave. There's a time to be strong. Maybe a time to be aggressive. But like that whole persona is a false interpretation of masculinity. Uh, A guy doesn't have to always be tough, right? But on the other side, there's a sort of unwillingness to face hard things and stand up and be tough. And I think that's a problem as well. And that's a false interpretation too. To be too soft is its own problem. So while I think there's perhaps a range within those virtues of leading, loving, providing, and protecting that account for various temperaments or personality types, there are also these false interpretations and the false interpretations can fall on an excess or a defect of the virtue. So, and I, so I don't like to use the word toxic masculinity as much as false interpretations of masculinity. Well, Dave, this is awesome. What a roadmap for a husband, for a man, right? To, to follow the, these virtues and to really uh, align ourselves up and use St. Joseph as our intercessor to really uh, provide grace upon our leadership as men. Yes. Well, thanks again for joining us, Dave. It's always a pleasure and a lot of fun and, and a great learning experience for all of us. Well, God bless you, Mario. You too. So today our guest is Bill Donahue. He is the co-author of RISE. He is a curriculum specialist at the Theology of the Body Institute. He is an author, an instructor, an international speaker with over 25 years of experience in mission, evangelization, and education. He has a background in visual arts, philosophy, and a master's in systematic theology. More importantly, is a husband and a father of four children, which he often refers to as kiddos. Let's welcome Bill. Okay, so here we are. We're with Bill Donahue. We're very excited to have you on, Bill. How are you today? I'm doing really well, praise God. So there's a lot of questions I want to ask you today. Uh, you have a very interesting background, uh, your, uh, your background with theology of the body, and you're a father of four, right? Is that right? That's right. We're a fully adoptive family. So all four kiddos are, uh, we adopted as babies and we have one in heaven. So I guess we should say five. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you about your family, Uh, but but before we get into all that stuff, let me just ask you a little bit about your background, Bill. Uh, Are you a convert? Were you born Catholic? Uh, Tell me what your experience was like as a child and how you brought up. Yeah, sure. Uh, Cradle Catholic, as they say. So baptized um, into the faith as a baby. November 9th. It's kind of neat to know your baptismal day, right, Mario? It's kind mm. of cool. <laughs> That's when I get like an extra donut, you know, November <laughs> 9th of year. Celebrate my baptism. That's so we cool. grew, up, grew up Catholic. Um, I'd say kind of just the Sunday I'm observing Catholic until 
the divorce of my parents when my father re kind of had a reversion deeper into the truth of the faith and the and my brother and I were drawn into that. So I guess uh, it really awakened for me what it meant to be Catholic when I was a teenager. Hmm. But praise God for His grace. Yeah, going strong. So um, your your dad influenced you quite a bit as a as a young man. Very much, and you know he continues to. He just uh, he lives up in Maine. He's retired up in Maine, and he comes down a couple times a year. And he just left. He was with us for three weeks, and he continues at seventy two wow. to just. Uh, be a rock of faith for me and just uh, a real gift. Praise God. So that's, that's awesome. So um, he uh, was inspired. He felt called to uh, further along his faith journey and shared it with his children. I'm sure there was a moment in your life where you took ownership mm-hmm. of the faith and experienced God for yourself uh, in your own unique way. What was that like? Was it a, a moment or an epiphany or something that transformed you where you felt, oh, this is why my dad is all about this? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, thanks for these questions. It's always great to dip back into your story, right? I love yeah. it. I do. I do really attribute. It's funny how God can write straight with our crooked lines, you know? So that seeing my father, there was all sorts of stuff in the story of um, what happened after the divorce, but my father's refinding of the faith, rediscovery and reversion. Um, he took us on a pilgrimage. So my brother and I went to Fatima, Portugal. Oh, at the age great. Of, um, yeah, amazing. I was 16, 15 or 16. And um, I got to say, like, Our Lady of Fatima just drew me under her mantle. And I remember as a teenager walking around that tiny hamlet in uh, in Portugal, seeing the faith really lived out. And uh, it felt like a palpable peace in that town of Fatima. And I just like the adoration and the, the smell of the candles, the midnight processions, I just had this thought as a teenager, wow, God's real. <laughs> and I really, I, I felt like Our Lady and God, like at that moment just became not just an intellectual thing that you kind of know or are told, but right. I felt it. And um, not that I haven't had a roller coaster ride since, but I'll tell you, he's just grabbed my heart. I praise God for that gift of Our Lady um, and Fatima. Still, still to this day, kind of drinking from that well. That's beautiful. Uh, that I have to say, that's unusual. I mean, most people, you know, come to Our Lady, you know, uh, through becoming aware of her. I, I did certainly in my life. I, uh, I, uh, you know, I was following the the teachings of the Church and trying to be the best Catholic I can as I got older in my years. But then I came to Our Lady just very recently in the past five years. So that's a beautiful story. How Our Lady drew you closer to her Son. You know. Yeah, it was very Eucharistic. I mean, um, you know, they, they talk about the three pillars of uh, Mary, Christ in the Eucharist, and the Holy Father. And growing up as a JP2 Catholic, experiencing Fatima and experiencing adoration, just, uh, I mean, I was doomed from the start, man. <laughs> talk about a one-two punch, that's a one-two-three. And I wow. was just <laughs> Now, I think also it had to happen early on because there's still a lot of work to be done. So I yeah. needed the lifelong <laughs> yeah. interruption of grace, right? That's awesome. Well, you talked about JP2. I know that you're, um, you know, involved in the uh, Theology of the Body Institute. We're going to talk about all that. But so when was your first introduction to JP2, his teachings, uh, the, the theology of the body, all that kind of stuff? When did that first happen to you in your life? Yeah, it's kind of amazing looking back now being with the Institute dedicated to him. But, you know, that mid-80s experience in my family and the reversion to the faith that was when John Paul II was in his prime. I mean, he was just this rock star pope who was mm-hmm. traveling the globe, 
being the conscience of the world. And as a teenager, I, I just saw this uh, vigorous kind of witness of faith. And, um, you know, he captivated me from that moment. And I knew he was, you know, he was an uh, outdoorsman. He was a poet, a playwright, a philosopher. And um, I remember being in a books, Catholic bookshop. I was 16, same, same age, 16 as the Fatima experience. And I first encountered Theology of the Body. It was, a, it was Daughters of St. Paul put out a few um, books of the audiences John Paul was delivering. He had just finished basically delivering Theology of the Body, and my hands fell on this book, and I cracked it open, and I thought, wow, what is, what's going on here? This is, uh, <laughs> this is intense stuff. And so really from that young age, he um, inspired me. I had a spell of discerning the priesthood in the early 90s, and he continued to just be this incredible witness. So I really praise God. Like John Paul has been a, a spiritual father for me really through the years. And today I'm just overwhelmed by um, the grace to try to give back as an educator, mm. teaching, teaching his theology of the body. Yeah, you want to share it, right? Once you find out the power of, of the truth, it's like uh, you can't keep it inside, right? You have to spew it out. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, so you're the senior lecturer and content specialist for the Theology of the Body Institute, and you joined from what I read here uh, back in 2010, but then you went full-time in 2013. So tell us a little bit about this journey and how you came to the Theology of the Body Institute and, and how you transitioned into it full-time. Sure. Um, actually, 2006 was when I began teaching for the Institute. Okay. Um, I became a full-time, fa- uh, not full-time, a faculty member in 2010. So the backstory is um, I had experienced the teaching back in 1986. It struck a chord. Uh, John Paul's thoughts, deeply philosophical and theological. So I can't say I read the entire catechesis. I was, mm-hmm. you know, 16 and eagerly awaiting Return of the Jedi at that time. <laughs> you and distracted. a gazillion other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was distracted. <laughs> but um, it was it was probably in 99 or 2000 when I, ex- I heard the tapes, cassette tapes, remember those, of yeah, uh, Christopher yeah. West. Now you're really showing our age. Yeah, right? I Christopher rem- West. I, I remember eight tracks. <laughs> so do I. Big clunky things. But um, Christopher West was giving a talk on this cassette tape, and I thought, man, there it is. That's the theology of the body. Mm. And I gave it to uh, the tapes to a friend of mine who was a businessman, and he had the idea of forming. He's like, we got to make an institute to teach this. So he he contacted Christopher West. Christopher West, Matt Pinto from Ascension Press, and my friend Dave Savage. They formed an institute around 2004, essentially 2004. And uh, as they're starting to build it out, they want to get speakers to teach this teaching. Aside from Christopher West, we wanted to build out a faculty. So they called me. They called me back and said, you know, Billy, you know, Dave says you've got this idea going. You want to be a part of this? And I said, give me, give me some time to think about it. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> it's about <laughs> three seconds. Um, so from 2006, presently, I've been traveling the world internationally, nationally, breaking yeah. open theology of the body. And in 2010, started teaching our courses. And yeah, 2013, they came to me and just formed, I was teaching high school. I was doing a bunch of other things, teaching at a university. They said, we have a full-time position we want to make just for you. Are you interested? And once again, I said, I just need about three seconds. The answer is <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I've been with them for um, coming on seven years full-time now. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. So you, you kind of, you teach and you put on these kind of immersion retreats, right? And uh, uh, mm-hmm. you, re- you give these retreats to bishops, priests, deacons, religious, lay faithful, a, a montage of people. So um, I guess my question is a little different, is that, um, I mean, the teachings are so prolific and it's almost, it's almost like mind-blowing. So mm. when you're sharing the theology of the body, do you see the light bulbs go off? Even in the bishop, it's like, <laughs> oh, 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 my gosh. Like, yes. what, what, is, what, is, what is that like, like when you're, when you're sharing it and, and how people respond to it once they understand the rationale and the logic and, and the brilliance of it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Mario, I, I have to say, I feel like a kid in a candy shop right. all, the time, all the time. I mean, I, I am constantly as an educator and, you know, senior lecturer sounds very fancy. I'm I'm still gobbling it up. I'm still being transformed in my prayer life, my intellectual life, mm. my life as a husband and a father. So I'm constantly delving deeper into the beauty of it. And, you know, to say theology of the body is to say the gospel. This is Catholicism. You know, it, it's the gospel. So when I am able to teach, and I, I mean, I've been in church basements in, in, in the Bronx. I've been in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea with a bunch of missionary bishops and all these different places and everything in between. You see, you do see the light bulbs go off. You see people like, wow, I, I, I never saw the faith articulate like this before. People say, I sort of, you know, I had an idea of like scripture and then there's like sexual ethics and morality and then there's like prayer the theology of the body seems to connect everything. It makes mm. it a cohesive, seamless garment. And that is so humbling. I mean, I, I'm constantly transformed by it, but it's so humbling to see, you know, a priest who's been a priest for 45 years or a bishop or a consecrated woman say things like, I am rediscovering my vocation. Mm. Or a married couple saying like, we were on the brink of divorce and oh my gosh, this is saving our marriage to, you know, to the teenager who is getting this dose when they're young and thinking, wow, Catholicism, this responds to my heart's desire. This makes sense. It's just, um, I can't even, (laughs) it's really humbling. It's really humbling. It's it's awesome. It's like, uh, it makes you really appreciate. I mean, there's so many uh, people today just don't understand their faith or don't understand why the teachings are as they are. And and sometimes they think of it as rules and they don't understand those rules. And since they don't understand those rules, they don't abide by those rules. And understanding or being exposed to the the teachings of St. John Paul, theology of the body, it's almost like, you know, looking under the hood, right? And understanding, oh, there's an engine in this car. That's why it moves. (laughs) So um, you're, you're, you're a husband and a father of four children, as we talked about a little bit earlier. And you co-wrote a popular program named Rise, 30-Day Challenge for Men with Chris Stefanik. So our theme today of this episode is Protector of the Church. And we're focusing on St. Joseph and the key role of men, husbands and fathers, in the family. I guess you can say that men and their unique role in the family has been downplayed today, almost like men are dispensable. What do you think about that? Oh, man. Yeah. Talk about wounds. I mean, we have hashtags flying around today, right? One of them is toxic masculinity. This was uh, fresh on the coattails of the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. which there's deep wounds there. I mean, there's deep, deep wounds. We're broken back to original sin, right? That is our inheritance from the fall. And I think it's certainly... um, it's a big hurdle. Like we, we, we see men not living their call to guard and protect. I mean, that was the initial call in Genesis that man was there to be a steward of the garden of Eden to guard and protect it. There's a great Hebrew word, shamar, which I love to, to kind of pray over. 
that means as a man, my first, one of my primary jobs is to, is to guard, protect, and be a steward. And uh, we really do see a failure, you know, in our own hearts. We see it culturally where men aren't, aren't doing that. And the thing is, you know, if we think it's toxic, the culture is saying we have to get rid of masculinity, right? We have to, we have to get rid of it. We have to emasculate. Because all this testosterone and all this strength and energy and this passion is just getting us into trouble. When in truth, it's all about the redemption of it. We need men more than ever to rise, to become who they were supposed to be, to be guardians, protectors, and stewards of the family. And when a woman sees a man who lives his authentic identity and mission, there is nothing more attractive than that. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing more attractive. And so, you know, we wrote Rise. I, I, um, Chris Stefanik does the daily videos, and I wrote the content and structure of it. It's, um, it's been beautiful, Mario, because we tens of thousands of guys all over the world at this point have gone through this 30-day reset of what it means to be a son, a brother, a spouse, and finally a father. And it's just beautiful because we're forming a community of men. Of We've got priests, seminarians, an abbot of a monastery, uh, married men, divorced men, college students. And they're sharing, they're like doing life together. Granted, it's an online format, but we encourage them to meet in small groups offline. And uh, it's just so healthy and so good. And men, especially young men, are aching to find out like mentorship. How do I, where do I go to figure out this whole mystery? Because the, t- the culture is not helping. So Rise is there to fill in that void and tell men who they are. Hey, Bill, share it with us. Where can, where online can someone register or find out more about it? Yeah, uh, Chris Stefanik, we're doing a whole reset now. He's um, So it's at Real Life Catholic, but you can also go to um, menriseup.org, mm-hmm. menriseup.org or reallifecatholic.com. Yeah. So what, what do you think is the essential role of a husband, a father in the family? Mm. Oh, man, how much time do we have, Mario? <laughs> it's so big. I feel like the call is, you know, I love St. John the Baptist. This kind of sums up, this could be a whole vision statement for your life. Mm-hmm. He must increase, I must decrease. Mm-hmm. He must increase, I must decrease. So somehow a father has to be present. He's got to be strength. He's got to be a frame. But the centerpiece is not him, right? Like it's it's not his his skill set, his, you know, accumulation of wealth, his whatever. It's he's framing something. It's like the Garden of Eden again. Mm-hmm. Uh, old now it's the Garden of the Family. So I see my vocation as really a, somehow laying down my life so my wife and children can flourish. Mm-hmm. And I want them to be happy and flourish in this garden. I want them to be safe, protected. I want to bring down the water of grace on it. Um, a sense of humor. I mean, the whole bit. Like I, That's what I think a man's got to be. He's got a one who lifts up, like Joseph always lifted up Our Lady and the infant yes. Christ. You know, in the home, classic, you know, and, and not everyone can have this experience, but, you know, ideally you've got, you've got a mother and father. And in a powerful way, we lead, like there's head and heart, you know, there's strength and then there's that intimate um, internal life. And so mother and father are supposed to be this dance where the kids can learn and grow from both. And um, that spiritual headship is not dominating. It's supposed to be at, at service. So just my daily routine, I mean, I'll get up at the crack of dawn, 530 in the morning, and I get a good cup of coffee and I go down and I do my prayers, my deliverance prayers, my prayers of protection for my family. I consecrate my family every morning by name to our Lord. Uh, I bring in Joseph and Mary. I put them under the mantle of Mary and in the strong hands of Joseph every day. 
um, direct intentional prayer focused on my wife and my children. Mm. And, um, of course, the first move is just letting my own heart be filled with God's grace. And then I try to be that leader throughout the day. I, you know, I, you don't want to blow a trumpet at the edge, you know, the end of the street there, that image, but I want my children to think back on their childhood and remember like, Oh, that was where dad would pray or this time of day, dad would always be praying or there's his rosary. You know, it's, it's, the external part is important. Like they need to see the faith is real and that we're active in it. They need to know that when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that hits the ground is your knees, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do, I really pray that I need to do that personally mm-hmm. as a father. I need to be filled with the father's love, but I have to immediately put my wife and children under the father's heart too and give them, give them to him. You know, it reminds me of something I read in St. John Paul's autobiography. Members of his family passed away at a very young age, but something that stuck with him is that he walked in on his father, and his father was on his knees in the morning praying, right? Um, And uh, that always left an impression on me. To lead by example is something that I think most men, when they're trying to figure out, you know, how do I lead my family? Well, the simplest way is to lead by example, right? Yes. And, you know, I, I go over back to my dad. I can remember after the uh, the divorce in the family, my dad's refining of the faith. I mean, we did the daily rosary and I can remember, I can still picture it. My dad, we had a little statue of Our Lady of Fatima um, that we brought back from Portugal. And my father would be saying his rosary. I mean, I could wake up at one o'clock in the morning and my dad would be out there, mm. uh, you know, and sometimes he'd fall asleep saying his rosary. <laughs> and, uh, but I would just see him completely dependent on the father and kneeling there. And I really, I love John Paul too, for so many reasons. And I feel a kinship with him in that sense. Like his father was a rock for him. And I just see the same as my dad being that, that rock. And I can see the silhouette of his body kneeling before our lady and praying. Mm, it's Praise beautiful. God. What an image. Well, listen, Bill, it's, uh, it's been great, you know, sharing this time with you. Um, I really, uh, if you remember, we kind of uh, met for the first time down at EWTN when we had interviews together, right. and uh, I was struck by you then. We were literally roommates, right? We're right next door That's to right. one another. We were, we were. That's right. And uh, it was, uh, it's nice to uh, re-meet up with you once again. So I wish you all the best in your work and your family. God bless you. Thanks so much, Mario. Really great to reconnect, and praise God for all the great stuff that you're doing. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Peace. So yet we've gone through another episode and thanks so much for hanging with us today. So stay tuned with us throughout the week on social media where we keep you engaged through our music, our videos, and daily reflections. If you enjoyed this today, remember, please share it. Let as many people know about it as possible. This podcast is only made possible by our donors and supporters of Array of Hope. You can become part of our Array of Hope family by going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.net. Our guest next time will be Sarah Swafford. Our theme is Catholic Dating in an It's Complicated World. It's going to be a great episode, and all you young single people should definitely listen to this and check it out. I want to thank my co-producer, David Heideck, and our engineer, Jack Garno for putting this all together. Thanks, guys. And once again, all of you out there listening, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been fun sharing the faith with you. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace.